It takes a village to build a season, and we are grateful that In Life Shiro's has chosen to become a part of ours. Thank you for supporting our show and helping us to continue sharing stories. Now, on to the episode. 12 years ago, Anya Lim, together with her mother, co-founded Anthill Fabric in an effort to revive and celebrate what was then the dying art of weaving in indigenous and artisan communities around the Philippines. A noble mission, but one that came with a mammoth laundry list of tasks, from gaining the trust of the tribes, to teaching and developing the communities, even to fighting to stay afloat during the COVID-19 pandemic. But, as Anya has discovered, the greatest of lessons come from the most unexpected of teachers. Today, as Anthill rebounds from the effects of the pandemic, Anya opens up about what she's learned from working closely with Indigenous communities and chats about the roots of Philippine culture. My name is Leah Cruz. On this episode of What Glass Ceiling, we talk to Anya Lim. Anya, welcome to What Glass Ceiling. Thank you so much, Leah, for having me. I'm super honored and grateful to be here. Okay, so I've I'm a huge fan of Ant Hill, and, and <laughs> I've been I, I have so many of your pieces, and 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 I met you several years back because I was buying from you. You're one of our OG proud weavers <laughs> from way back. Yeah. Yes. But, Tell us the story of Antil Fabric for those who haven't heard your story yet. Okay, so um, there's two sides of the story. Uh, late, lately, like the past um, years, uh, another origin story sort of unfolded. But it really is a story between my mom and myself. So I think um, a huge part of Antil's origins is really anchored on the way my parents brought up my upbringing. My mom is a missionary, the first batch of the Jesuit volunteer program in Ateneo. And she grew up really immersing herself in different indigenous communities. So those are my bedtime stories. It wasn't of Disney princesses. And I was so drawn to like understanding the richness and the diversity of Filipinos, the Manobos, the um, Aitas, the um, um, Mangyans, the Ifugaos, uh, Kalinga. And these were like characters in my storybook. Um, and so like summers were also spent going around these um, villages. My mom took us to a village in Banawe one summer. I was probably... I don't know, about 13 or 12. And um, it was like a thriving village. And to me, it was like my version of Disneyland. All the characters in that storybook came to life. And I was like, these are my people. And they were all like (laughs) weaving baskets, carving brass, carving wood. And so my brother and I, it kind of stuck in our core memory that we decided to go back. Um, after we finished college. And sadly, that village became a total ghost town. So to me, that was the first kind of seed planted um, that led to Ant Hill. I witnessed firsthand the death of a beautiful culture that was very much a huge part of my childhood. So I was very sad. It really bothered me. Like it stuck in my brain and in my heart that how could one thriving village 
suddenly turn into a ghost town. And when we kind of asked around the young um, ones, the young uh, tribal members in that village, they said that they all turned to become tour guides because this was in Banawe. Um, so they were seeking out greener pastures that would you know, put income in the table, put food on the table, and increase their income. So that was one. And then I kind of just like fast forward. I just kind of pursued that curiosity and and interest, I guess, in understanding why we were not giving so much attention to the different living traditions of our indigenous communities. So I was very fortunate. I've had friends in um, that had connections with different indigenous communities. And I was able to go around um, different communities. And it was the same. It was the same. It was like validating what I witnessed. Um, a lot of the communities, especially the weaving communities, um, most of the weavers were in their elder years and none of the younger women really found any, you know, logic in learning the craft anymore. So it was a dying tradition and there was a huge gap in establishing that continuity in culture. And that primarily was the reason of why we established Anthill. And second also, of course, like, that being a huge part of my childhood, I also wanted it to be something I could um, share with my future child, if ever, you know. So, so I thought it was very important for us to keep culture alive and celebrate it for the future generation. And that probably also was like the second reason why we pursued Ante. Like we wanted to give more attention to culture being celebrated as opposed to just it being in coffee table books or in, in museum walls. Yeah. And then third, I think at that time I was also very young and I felt like with my peers, when we talk about what it make what it means to be Filipino, there is still that huge sense of of poverty and identity. Like because we've been colonized for so long, what still is attractive for us is to adapt to like Western ways and influences. And I realized going around, it wasn't just a reality among my friends or among my circle, but even more so among the younger generation in these communities, in this rural and indigenous community. They all wanted to seek out greener pastures in the city. They wanted to become um, like domestic helpers abroad, factory workers abroad. And there's nothing wrong with these aspirations. They're all dignified jobs, right? But the reason for them desiring for that is because they undervalue what they already have. And they don't see the potential of their craft or they don't see the value of their heritage and so, so yeah, that's the that's kind of the the reason why we established um, Anthill. I feel like there's so much I can get from what you just said and and ask you about and single out and pull it out and ask you about. But let's talk about the communities. I mean, you've mentioned them already so many times. Tell us about the weaving communities that you work with now, the indigenous communities, and I, I, tell us how you found them, how you 
I can imagine it was difficult to gain their trust also at first. So I'd like to hear about that. Yes, for sure. Um, What's beautiful and exciting about the work that we do is we don't just work with Indigenous communities. So we work with three sectors, the Indigenous communities, we work with rural communities, and also urban communities. Not all are weaving communities, some are craft communities. So we also have communities like Sasutanawa that make brass from Lake Cebu, South Cotabato. And we work with um, doll makers in Tisa Labangon, which are urban communities. How we found them, it's really very providential. So a lot of it are through friends and connections. Our first community is in Abra. Mang Abel di Abra. Um, we found them because my mom was doing work with um, the congregation of the SVD and Bishop Haushan, which was then the Bishop of, of Ilocos, if I'm not mistaken, or Abra, um, mentioned to us this community that needed support in terms of market access. And so that's how we met them. And then our other community in Bukidnon, which is an indigenous tribe, the Daraguyan Bukidnon tribe, we met them because my mom's friend was doing consultancy work for Oxfam. And they were also looking at ways on how they can incentivize their tribal youth to go back to the, the, their heritage center or to, to their community. And that's why they approached until if they could work with us in doing so. And with, um, yeah, it was all kind of introductions. So we have five communities that we directly work with, and this is kind of where we apply or where we um, facilitate our impact program, which is what we call our Community Enterprise Development Program. It's a capacity building program that transfers business skills to these communities so they can become self-reliant and run their businesses on their own. But on top of that, we also have about currently 15 textile partners. With these textile partners, our interventions are not as deep and we just help them um, with two things, product design and innovation and then market access. So but we base our impact measurement both in these two clusters of communities that we work with. Uh, yeah, and you asked about trust. Um, that's a hard, uh, hard, hard uh, relationship or like, I guess a foundation to achieve. And it took time. Um, community development takes time. Um, and the, I guess the, the key investment to building trust is really presence. Um, with the five communities that we work with, we really took the time to uh, get to know them, um, not come in as an outsider, but really let them feel that uh, we are partners in the community. Um, we immerse ourselves in their reality, in their environment, in their way of life, in their language, in their culture. And that took a lot of time. Um, I would think Aunt Hill's first five years was really invested in building relationships and trust with these communities 
before we gain the confidence to really put ourselves out there and market their products. It was a lot of relationship building because we didn't want to come in as employers, you know, or as um, someone who just merely purchases their fabrics. From the get-go, we established that we are business partners and we spent so much time uh, making sure that we're aligned in the dreams that we have for their community, also for Anthill, and how Anthill is able to enable that dream to fruition. I'm curious, what were the most difficult cases of trust that you had to gain? I mean, how difficult did it become? How much of a challenge? Can you give us an example? Yeah, um, a lot of these uh, women are traumatized from their experience from middlemen taking advantage of their lack of business know-how. So when we came in and when we were explaining what Antel is going to be all about, uh, they really were not kind of 100% in it or keen on, on doing business with us. They didn't have that kind of long-term understanding of, of the partnership. Like they thought uh, it's just going to be a one-time, big-time thing, and then that's it. One anecdote I remember um, with our weavers is when we were initially, when we were initially um, working with them, um, they were kind of iffy about like not certain if we were gonna come back to the community. Like they thought it was just going to be a one-time, big-time purchase, and so they were doing all these sorts of things that would try to get us back. Like they would um, compromise their price. So they had they had like a, a selling price, right? And for us it wasn't even fair, but that kind of was that kind of was um the benchmark that they had because that was what um middlemen would would buy their products for. And babaratin panalalalo yung Yung price just to ensure that we come back and and that was really sad you know and we would always challenge them to actually price it more by making them understand the process of what goes into costing right like how much time did you spend on it what were the materials um input materials involved in like a meter of 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 and when we said, no, we're actually willing to pay this much, they were surprised. And th they even doubted that. Like, maybe they're just saying it. What kind of assurance do I get that they're actually going to consistently pay this price? They were scared that we come in and buy fabrics from them, pay them at a higher price than they were regularly selling it for, but then we wouldn't come back anymore. So that was kind of the fear. Um, but yeah, I think overcoming that was just really being there and not having an agenda. Um, sometimes we would come visit and it was not, uh, it was not the first thing we do where we, where they showcase their wares and we 
kind of vis- merchandise visually and buy whatever we like. The What we do initially in the first couple of days or first couple of hours is just really come in a circle and have a conversation with the community there. But there's a lot of lessons along the way. It didn't take overnight to build trust. We made a lot of mistakes also. We, um, a lot of stories and lessons around listening, around, um, at one, at one point when, when the business was at its peak, we also had, um, we were defining success differently from how they were defining it. And that also was a wake up call. That's interesting. Can you tell us how different your definition of success then was from their definition of success? Yeah. So, um, you probably would follow the timeline, Leah, because you've been in our very first pop-ups in Manila. When we decided to expand our distribution in Manila and Thesaurus offered us, um, a space. And that was actually a very good arrangement because they would basically um, fund our production for the inventory at the Soros. And given that, it scaled our demand, you know, uh, completely 180 from how the weavers back then used to produce. And it kind of jump-started the, the growth in terms of retail in Ant Hill. So... Then coming, you know, establishing Ant Hill, our vision was really, we want to revive the local weaving industry and what our impact indicator and what we thought would be such a milestone was being able to increase income of the weavers and, and therefore increase their savings also, which was part of our program. And the way we did that was to be able to increase demand and for them to weave consistently. And that all happened because of the Soros. But at the end of the year, when we usually would do a roll call, it's like an income savings reporting. And we would one by one, you know, recite their names and their corresponding savings at the end of the year. Um, one nanai raised her hand at the Franny. I'll never forget her raised her hand from Abra and she said, uh, Ma'am, sobrang saya na po namin dahil lumaki talaga po yung kita namin para ang grabe na po yung mga orders ng mga hobby namin tsaka marami nang nagsusuot ng hobby namin. Pero ma'am, baka nakakalimutan niyo po, ba- bago, ko, bago po kami mga hobby, nanay po kami. And it was like a you know, uh, a slap in the face, really. Um, and they said that despite the increase in income, it also took time away from them being present in their ha- homes, in their household. Um, and they didn't want that um, that balance to be threatened, I guess. Um, and yeah, so at the time, we realized that Speed and scale does not necessarily have to be the standard of success. And it was very humbling for me personally, studying communications and, you know, learning all these participatory ways of dialogue. And then here I am coming in as a know-it-all, having a, a concept in mind of what would make them happy. 
does not necessarily make them happy. You know, like to them, what was really important was that they'd be able to become better mothers. And that really meant presence for their family and not necessarily like loads and loads of, of, of cash or income. What are the other big lessons that you've learned from them? Life lessons that, you know, are somewhat of an eye-opening experience, I guess. That lessons that open your eyes or change your perspective. Um, a lot of things. Uh, I think uh, coming to the pandemic, um, we realized that Grabe pala, our partner communities are probably way more resilient than us. We underestimated that. You know? um, we were so anxious and worried about not being able to facilitate impact work because we had limitations given the pandemic. You know, we had issues on cash flow. We had an overstock of inventory. Um, so many people within the team were, you know, um, suffering from mental health issues. And we felt like we were not able to show up for them. But on the other hand, they provided so much reassurance from us. The only support we were able to give them was the funds from our savings program we were able to, to give to them. And they used this in ways where we did not really expect would allow them to even thrive during the pandemic. One, I think, valuable lesson was that we needed to trust the work that we did with them. And that actually allowed us, that, that allowed them to tap into their entrepreneurial mindset. Um, but then for them, it was just innate. It was just honoring their indigenous knowledge. So a lot of them returned to the soil for sustenance. And to us in Anthill and our team, it was a realization to really go back to what you already have and to trust the, that everything you have is already available to you. Everything you need is already available to you. And that to us was really very powerful. Um, another thing also is this was something that I learned from a mentor when she pointed out that no one is in the business of like empowering people, but also learning that by witnessing how a lot of our partner women artisans rose to their power because power is really innate in all of us. You know, it's just, it's, you can't give power to someone. Power is already within them. It's, you're just going to provide enabling environments or a platform for them to realize their potential. And that was also, also very powerful. And yeah, like a lot of people think that um, indigenous communities are very backwards in their way of thinking. Um, they think that they don't know anything. Uh, there's a lot of um, derogatory uh, misconception around them being barbaric and katutubo e tribo lumad, these labels. But actually, 
they they're very knowledgeable. Um, indigenous knowledge is something that we all have to learn from, especially given the social issues we deal with now and the climate issues we deal with now. It's so interesting because I, I think the general the general sentiment. For people like you and me who come from the city, who come from the background that we do is, you know, you want to go in there and and you want to empower them and you want to help them and you want to create an environment where they can really thrive, maybe financially. That's what we're thinking, which is exactly what, what you mentioned. But to to learn these lessons that that's not actually the most important thing. It's it it sort of it's it's sort of blows your mind also there's so much wisdom there and it's so powerful and how how do you how do you process all of this because at the end of the day coming in with the mindset that i mentioned that you go there to create an environment where weaving can thrive or you go there to empower them or help them but then in in the end it's it's like you take away all these lessons yourself yeah <laughs> i mean it just all that you said is a lot to process, right? Because, because it, there's, there's such a, it's a different, it would seem like it's a different world. But actually, um, it's a simple version of the world that, that we live in. Um, because I think, I think coming from urban, dense, communities where we're, we're based it's so fueled by desire and ambition right whereas you come into these very secluded intimate familial communities and there's so much interconnection and like, to answer your question I think that's also something that I am grateful for with the work we do in Antil because it has grounded me so much as a person in the sense where um, I'm able to acknowledge different realities and I'm also able to sift through my environment to realize what really what what really is that which aligns with my values? And how do I process it and how do I deal with that? I think I would want to think that along, along the line and through the years, I've become a better listener, not just to be able to address a problem or an issue or to respond, but really to understand like where their stories are coming from and where their perspectives are coming from. And for example, I'll, I'll give a very specific example. Um, with COVID happening, even if there was so much resiliency exemplified in, in the way they dealt, dealt with their situation, there was also panic and some, some form of anxiety. And when everyone became online sellers, you know, like lahat nagbintahan sa Shopee, Lazada, Facebook Marketplace, na go live, the weavers themselves actually expressed, we don't want to get left behind. We want to be able to learn that too. 
And so they kept telling us na how, you know, how? How do we use these digital tools for us to be able to keep up with the changing times? And I guess if if it was Aunt Hill or me before, I would just jump into the the bandwagon and say, step one, step two, step three, this is how, how you do it and, and let's make it happen. But this time around, I think there's a more healthy dynamic and we checked on them also. Like uh, weaving tradition and technology is a beautiful aspiration, a desire to have, but this is what it entails. And then we lay down the reality of, of what it means and we check in on them. Um, is this something that, you know, uh, is okay for you to do, is something that aligns with your way of life, etc. So so now, now it becomes like a, a dialogue. It, I, we come in more to learn from them. And we help them also learn about our reality. So it's, there's so much more reciprocity, I think, now. Because we try to understand each other's realities. And, and so that helps inform their decision. Okay, okay kami dyan. And when they, when they make that decision, knowing that this is what they're get, going to get themselves in, for example, all this e-commerce and digital, digital, digitalization, they have a higher sense of ownership because they understand. So that's kind of how we do things. Even with, even with the concept of money, Leah, when we started introducing profit to this community in Bukidnon, they're a tribe and they're so used to doing barter for years before we came in. And when we, when we taught, taught, taught them how to cost their, their products, etc., even with the Tabolic community, it's so alien to them, you know, the concept of monetary value, money, like really you're willing to pay this much for what I'm making. Because for them, that's not, barter is not undervaluing what they have. The, the value, the value there is in being able to share what they have to others, which is something that's also a reality to us. So yeah, a lot of wisdom, truly. Have there been any instances where you have to make sure that you don't make them feel like you're appropriating their culture or their identity because of what what the company is based on? Yes, um, a lot of lessons on cultural appropriation. So that's why we're a huge advocate on of um, indigenous knowledge and protecting materials culture also because... Um, for instance, when we started working with these weaving communities, we were very respectful of their traditional colors and the patterns that they make. But then if we wanted to keep up with the times and increase demand, if our mission is to sustain livelihood, then we have to keep up with market trends. And the first intervention was in color. Color lang. And, and people would think, oh, color lang naman yun eh. It's very minor. But... To them, these colors are representative of their way of life. It has meaning. It has a deeper meaning. So we were very, we were very humbled and educated by the culture bearers. 
call them, or the tribal elders. And they're the ones who educate us about what are the parameters of how we can work with them. So every time we want to introduce a new idea, may it be in um, introducing neon colors or colors of the season, or may it be um, changing the dimension of a certain pattern or introducing even a new pattern that they can explore doing or how we can apply the weaves into clothing. Can it be used for footwear? Can it be used for shorts? Can it be used for a crop top? Um, there has to be conversation involved. There has to be consultation involved. And no matter how minute it may be, they have to know. That's it. They just have, there just has to be an exchange of knowledge and respect. In your opinion, what is the most misunderstood thing about the culture of these communities, of these tribes, of these indigenous people that, that people perhaps hailing from urban areas don't get? What's the most misunderstood thing about them that you've come to realize? Misunderstood thing about indigenous communities is them being backwards. The one I mentioned earlier. That's always the misconception that um, they don't know much, that they are not knowledgeable or full of wisdom. I feel I learned so much more talking to a tribal woman or a ba'i, uh, like the babaylans, I learned so much more. It, it, it fills me up. It fills up my soul so much more versus, say, a PhD professor from whatever university. You know, because they, they're very grounded and they learn like nature is their teacher. And if you look at it from, I guess, a macro perspective, isn't that how we existed? You know, we, our ancestors thrive because they had a relationship with nature. Um, people get an impression that they don't know much because they're not um, adaptive to the modern times. And yet they actually know the essentials. But another thing I wanted to point out is a lot of people think our fabrics are printed. And I super, super hate that when, when people get that impression or when people just even say that. Yung ginitong print, and I always say, it's not a print, it's hand-woven. We also deal with a lot of customers who think that weaving is something that's easy to do or fast lang yan. Like, that's why we stress on calling it slow fashion. And that's why... Um, which I as much to educate our consumers on the process behind weaving. Because especially now, it's becoming very popular. There's more um, brands that make it accessible for, for people to buy weaves. People think it's easy to produce. And so it should be, and it's made in the Philippines, and it's made among these communities. So it should be cheap. way of thinking. So just to give people an idea, how long does it take to produce, I don't know, um, a certain length or a certain amount of hand-woven fabric like that? Yeah, so get, like, how- let's simplify it to like a stripe pattern. 
diba? that's a common pattern. Um, one meter of Cantarina stripe would take, uh, sorry, in a day, uh, a weaver would be able to finish four meters of Cantarina stripe. Four to seven meters. And that really depends on the skill, the level of skill of the artisan. My master weavers, my apprentices, a more intricate pattern, the binakpol, they would probably only be able to finish about two to three meters a day. Yun. And that doesn't even include the warping, preparing the thread in the loom, the setting it up in the loom. So warping itself is like, it's a, it's it's preparing the the up and down direction of the fabric, the vertical direction of the fabric. And that one, it takes a day. It takes a, an entire day to prepare the warp, the design of the fabric. And then takes another day to set it on the loom. And there's also a lot of intricacies around it because if it's a natural fiber, they have to harvest the fiber from the plant. If it's naturally dyed, they have to cook it and forage natural dyes. Um, if it's not, if it's a natural fiber, there's other elements that affect it. If it's too hot, the abaca breaks, so they have to keep knotting it. So it affects the weaving time. In indigenous communities, they perform a ritual before and after weaving. So. It varies depending on which community we're talking about. And people don't know this. People think these fabrics are just woven in weaving centers and factories. Yeah, yeah. And they come out in trade fairs as beautiful clothes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they don't know what goes behind it. Do you ever have those moments where you're struck with how different your life, your personal life and your personal background is from these communities that you've worked with for quite some time and have grown so close to? Do you have, do you have those instances where it's sort of difficult to process just how separate these worlds are? Because it seems like the biggest, it seems like the, one of the biggest challenges that you face is really bridging the gap, eh? between the, the difference in, in background and perhaps in culture? Yeah, I think it's just among uh, like an eye-opener um, situation where it really made me feel, yeah, it, we're very different. Was um, We were doing our monitoring and evaluation in one of our communities and we were kind of looking for just collecting qualitative data and asking like where they use their savings. And um, one nanai at the she was um, in tears and she said, oh mom, I'm so proud. I used my savings to buy a cushion. And I was like, ano, 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 ano pong ibig yung sabihin? Ano pong cushion? As in like a bed mattress. Um, that's what she saved up for. And it was just one queen bed mattress because that's what that's what could fit in their house. And then anim salang um natulog sa bed mattress. But if you could just see her face, there was so much joy in her eyes because she said, I have never slept in a mattress. And it made me feel like we all felt like princesses being able to sleep in a mattress. And then it dawned on me that, yeah, I mean, 
we're so different. Because sometimes you feel like there's also a lot of similarities, right? As I was telling you earlier, that intergenerational pattern, the the um the desire also to be able to be a better mother, to be able to provide for your children. I mean, there's a lot of similarities, but I think what really sets them apart is um their how they nurture content um and 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 satisfaction because they take so much delight in in a lot of simple things that that we take for granted i also have to ask because you know i'm i'm born and raised in manila and a lot of the people here also who surround me we're very manila centric i have to admit it, it, we think that the <laughs> we think that the world revolves around us even though it doesn't, but because this is the capital of the country and big decisions are made here, um, the mindset tends to be like that. Now, I know you're from Cebu and you're still based there. I mean, you may be in Australia at the moment, but, but that's really where you're based. And of course, these weaving communities are definitely not from any big capital city and, and their, their, their ways are very much different. But what I'm curious about is based on your experience and the weaver's experience, what's it like to sort of be on the outside looking in, but knowing that life doesn't stop at the boundaries of Metro Manila. There are so many precious parts of the country all over. There are so many beautiful parts of, of, of our culture as a people. I mean, what do you have, what do you have to say about that? I get that a lot from, I think, Manila or people coming from big cities. I think that's also why it was very intentional for us to be based in Cebu, even if we could have been based in Manila. You know, I think it was very strategic for us to be central because we work with communities all across the country anyway. And I think it's also more than just the perks of um, the capital uh, in terms of markets um, and and customer base. I think it was also an advantage for us to be in Cebu um, and know both Tagalog and Bisaya because, yeah, it's also the language because it's very valuable when we do community development work. Um, yeah, I think, I think, I, I mean, I don't want to stereotype. I don't think people who live in big cities or in the capital live in a bubble. I think there's, there's the knowledge and awareness that there's a world that exists beyond the big city. But I think that, um, there's also a lot of probably, um, uh, a notion that that disparity takes you to a different level, you know, like parang I was, I'm gonna say there's a lot of ego in it because parang, okay, everything's accessible in Manila, we come from the big city, we're exposed to these um, opportunities and um, we're better off than the rest of of, of, of the region, you know um, that could be from a from a weaver's point of view. 
um, for the longest time, it was very intimidating. It was very intimidating up until um, it became popular. Working with weaving communities um, became mainstream. Like, as I mentioned earlier, now it's such a joy to see that there's so many other brands popping left and right uh, working on supporting our weaving culture. And now the weavers perceive that as, as an opportunity. Um, it doesn't seem intimidating anymore to them to go to Manila and join trade fairs and bazaars. So to me, the silver lining or the, I think the, the bright side of Manila being all this is um, it, it's, a good, it's a good way for the, the weaving communities and the artisans to open also the eyes of, of Manilenos, I guess, or those who live in urban areas that, yeah, these, there's, there exists a world beyond the capital and the big buildings. And, and culture, culture at its most authentic form is not in Makati or in BGC, you know. Um, and it's also not just in weave wearing. You know? I, think, I think Manila now also provides a platform or a bridge for the weavers to directly interact with weave wearers and customers. And that's the beauty of it. Um, and in that exchange of stories, people in Manila are able to experience culture differently um, through the stories that our weavers live. And I think that's, that's, the, that's the beauty of it, that they are able to get exposed in, in the reality or in the culture that's, that's really us, you know, that's, that's really um, our roots and our origin. Coming from the pandemic, what are your hopes and dreams for Anthill? I mean, especially because I know that you guys didn't have it easy also during the pandemic. So where do you go from here? Uh, there's a lot of exciting things. Um, but where do we go from here is we take it slow. <laughs> that's, the, that's the short answer. I think, um, I think that's something that we've been embracing and accepting um, that we learned uh, in 2020. Um, that 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 slow is still a milestone to celebrate. Um, given that, uh, we actually are launching this year our non-for-profit arm, which is called the Center for Slow, which is sustainable livelihood and zero waste. Since our work is largely focused on on that, and we will go back to focusing more on our impact work, which is something we've done in the first five years before we showcase the beautiful clothes that um, a lot of you guys are able to wear with pride. Um, we let go of our ready-to-wear, but we will continue um, producing clothes, this time more in more small batch batches and with more focus on putting the spotlight on the fabrics. Um, the dream is to bring our weaves to the world. That's why I'm here. That's why we're um, 
trying as much to build communities among the diaspora community in the U.S. and Australia and everywhere else in the world. Um, we want to just keep expanding that, that community we've, we've established. Um, and the same, it goes both ways in terms of our partner weaving communities. We also dream of, of being able to grow that. Um, that's why we launched our first community fabric store. Um, this year also, we're launching a crowdfunding platform specific for our partner artisan. So I think in a nutshell, what's next is really deepening our impact and, and scaling across um, to more communities, um, but in a more in a more uh, intimate way, uh, and just really focusing on, on, on building our communities around our proud weavers and our proud weavers. Anya, I feel like there's so much more I want to ask you. Bitin ako, but, <laughs> but we don't have... <laughs> We don't have all the time in the world. So so thank you so much for being on What Glass Ceiling and, and sharing all the wisdom that you've learned from working with these communities and, and building Ant Hill also. And before before you before you go and we end the show, can you give us the words that you live by? Yeah. So nowadays, um, I have been anchoring my life to um, a, a quote by Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, in 2018, I actually had a feather with flowers tattooed on my leg and it was inspired by what he said to walk as if you're kissing the earth gently with your feet. Ayan. Walk as if you're kissing the earth gently with your feet. And I think that really encapsulates what Ant Hill and our partners and their way of life have taught me. That slow is beautiful. Anya, thank you so much for being on What Glass Ceiling. My pleasure. And thank you so much for letting us share our story and my story. Feel like you need a little more female support? Visit www.inlifeshiros.com for more information or to connect with a financial advisor.